Hey, Pete. Thanks for that. Thanks for doing our Bible reading today. And just to let you know, mate, I didn't have a chance to go and catch that fish. So we got up to Wodonga, but I didn't get to see any water. So that was a bit disappointing. But good to catch up uh, with the family and see Kate and that and do those kind of things. Hey, let's pray and then we'll crack on into our passage today. Loving God, we want to thank you for uh, this time together, this opportunity just to gather in our homes. Uh, we are one church in many homes and we, we come together in our lounge rooms and maybe in our beds, I don't know, but various spaces to, uh, to take some time to worship, to hear from your word, to learn from your word, that it might shape our hearts, uh, warm them with affection for you and direct uh, the way that we would live. Lord, we thank you for that. We're looking forward to uh, this passage this morning. We also just continue... Um, to hold in prayer the Armisteads and the Berrimans, and, and we think of John, Trisha's dad, as, as he's undergoing his uh, treatment as well. Lord, we know there's many people in our family, far and wide, uh, that we can lift up to you uh, for care and for comfort, and we just, we just bring them all before you now. Uh, be with us now as we peer into your word, help it to shape our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Well, in our passage today that, that Peter has just uh, brought to us, read to us, Uh, Jesus answers perhaps the biggest question that the human heart has to face, that the human heart has to deal with, whether it actually wants to admit that, whether it thinks through that in any uh, kind of direct way or not. This is uh, a question that Jesus is addressing. And Jesus' answer to this question, again, we keep seeing it, it turns history uh, upside down and around. Um, And it spins around the generally accepted idea of, of religion up to the point. Never before... Jesus, and indeed never since Jesus, has anyone answered the, this dilemma in such a radically and effectual, uh, transformative kind of a way. Jesus' answer to the question that every mind has to resolve is, is both, it acts as an agent of disturbance, but it also comes as an agent of peace as, as the answer settles in our heart, as the dilemma is solved. And what is the dilemma of every heart, that every heart has to resolve? Who can forgive sin? Who is it that forgives sins? Who is it that my life is ultimately answerable to? Who is it that I have to seek approval from or gain favor from? And how do I then do that? How do I gain that favor? How do I get that favor in order that I can live with some degree of peace? In order that I can live with some degree of purpose? In order that I can live with some degree of confidence uh, in, in what I'm doing? And the answer, just in case you miss it over the next 20 minutes, is faith. But not um, abstract faith, not faith based in some subjective idea that we might dream up or that we might design, but faith in the concrete, uh, historic self-disclosure of the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You know, outside of Jesus, the universal approach, I mean, the essence of religion and, and human thinking around the subject of sin and how to deal with it, uh, as Timothy Keller points out, is always advice. Here is what you have to do. Here is what you have to do in order to come into contact with God, uh, to be acceptable to God. This is what you must do in order to earn God's blessing. Or here is a pathway that you must follow uh, for self-improvement. Or here is a set of precepts or principles uh, in order to get connection with the divine. Our universal approach, our universal understanding, our default mode, if you like, has always been, what must I do? 
I must call on my inner strength. I must fill my mind with something or I must empty my mind of everything. I must modify my behavior. I must modify my reality, my morality. Uh, I, I have to change my treatment of the planet. I have, to, I have to do something about the poor. If you want to know that your sins won't ultimately uh, condemn you, that your, your sins won't ultimately stack up in the, in the too many column, we have to keep doing. We have to do something. And we love this. Well, we tend to love it. We lap it up because what we think is, is this puts us in control of our lives. But what we find at the same time is we crave for control. We also become aware of our inability to adhere to this advice, to meet these standards. So rather than actual all our work and effort bringing us closer and closer in relationship, we actually feel distance. And we actually feel the burden of duty. So we, we end up doing more. We end up trying to be better. Or in the end, we just give up and derail. And then along comes Jesus. And he begins to shatter this religious paradigm. In our journey through Luke so far, uh, we, we have seen this in Jesus. And we're encountering it in Jesus. That he's not just another teacher uh, come, come to give us some more rules to follow that we must adhere to. He's not someone who's just come and said, here's a pathway to righteousness that you must follow. He's not someone who has just come and said, here's what you must do. Let me tell you again what you must do. Now, in Jesus, we have a man who says, actually, I have been sent to you from God to do the work. I have been sent from God to come and close the gap. I have been sent from God not to create more rules, not to, not to show you the distance, but to actually eliminate that distance. I have not come to give you more advice. I've come to give you news, good news. News that is for the poor. It's an inclusive news. No one is excluded from this news. News of, of liberty for those who are enslaved. News of, of renewed sight, of the ability to perceive. News of liberty of the oppressed. This is a news that brings the helpless in. This is a news that sets captives free. This is a news of what is being done for you, not what you must do. This is actually news of salvation. Jesus simply says in Luke 4, using the words of a prophecy, uh, collective words about a prophecy of a messianic figure, a saving figure who would minister to those in distress, those who couldn't help themselves, those who want to know uh, who can forgive sins and, and how does that happen. Jesus says, I am he, I have come, and my life is the very news up until now, nothing has been able to reverse or, or put an end to the effects of sin in how it devastates relationships, destroys well-being and health, how it misdirects spirituality and worship, how it puts distance between people and God, how it causes paralytic pride that blinds and disables and enslaves our motives to these work ideals. That all ends now with me, Jesus says, and everybody needs to listen. And respond, good, bad, rich, or poor. You see, you must see me as your ultimate reality, in, in essence, is what Jesus has come to say. And that's what we saw that Jesus did for Peter in the boat. You must see me as the ultimate solution to your greatest needs, Jesus says. And that's what we saw Jesus do for the leper down in the dust. It's a big claim, but it's a beautiful claim. It's also a dangerous claim. Because while it brings peace and inspires followers, it also brings 
um, con- controversy and incites conflict uh, in people and in our own hearts. There's nothing neutral about this news that Jesus teaches about who he is and what he's come to do. We are meeting both of these responses in Luke's account, those who find peace and those who find conflict. This is one of the reasons why we know that what we have in Luke's account is is actual, accurate, uh, historic account of the events. It's kind of messy. It's got some strange little details that don't add to the story. What are they doing there? It's full of disagreement and challenge towards Jesus, the hero, the founder of this movement. His claims are constantly doubted, constantly investigated, uh, constantly pushed back on. It's what it looks like in real life, not just some um, fabricated magical little fable. Jesus is either protested or praised, a conflict or comfort. Jesus never really left anyone with any scope just to merely like him or admire him. C.S. Lewis says, if the Christian faith is not true, is not true then it's, it's unimportant. It really doesn't matter. But if it is true, it is of infinite importance because of the question, because of the question that, that traumas every heart. But one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. How Jesus addresses us is of infinite importance. And those who have been most conflicted about Jesus are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are the guardians of the rules. These uh, professional theologians uh, are the ones who have dedicated their lives to interpreting the law in order to make sure that they find ways of keeping it, that they don't transgress it. They have the answer of who forgives sins. God alone does this. But their means of achieving it was through keeping the law that God had given them. The Pharisees and the scribes had placed so many boundaries, so many rabbinical standards on life in relation to this law that God had given them to prevent a breach of this law that it actually lost its intent. Its intent was originally to be relational. It was originally there to be shaping our hearts, shaping our character to know and reflect the character of God who is revealed and given in the law. But rather, this law became regulational. The focus shifted from knowing the character of God to working on performance and practice of your deeds that you might please this God. And we call it legalism. It is the, it's the curse of religion because it enslaves. It enslaves people to works. And this is where the conflict lay. Jesus seemed to be disregarding all these regulations that they built, that they put in place. And in Luke's gospel so far, this is centered around regulations on, on the Sabbath and, and regulations on cleanliness and what, what you can come into contact with. But in actual fact, what Jesus is really doing is destroying the distance that these regulations have created between the practitioners and God. The religious establishment are at conflict with Jesus because they they have challenged his credentials and his authority to be doing these things, to to be making the claims he did, to be overriding their boundaries around all the things that he did in his ministry. One of the ways, though, that Jesus sets about demonstrating that his claims are not um, irrelevant, that his claims are not just the the words of some uh, self-proclaimed saviour, that he's not just a law disregarder, was to perform miraculous healings and restorations on people that pointed to the kind of 
saviour he was, that pointed to the kind of law keeper he was, that pointed to the, the kind of life and salvation that he would bring and, and, and his authority to do so, where that came from. Luke tells us on one of those days, Jesus was at it again, teaching people, sharing the good news. And not only that, Luke tells us that the, the, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. This is Luke's way of saying the very authority and power of God was, was clearly tangible, could clearly be seen in, in what Jesus was doing on one of those days. And there, to cast their vast theological minds over all that Jesus was doing was all of Israel's teachers. Not just the local ones from the Capernaum uh, crew, but ones from every corner of Israel, from every village in Galilee and Judea, including down in, in HQ Jerusalem. All of them had come to check out what Jesus was doing. I love it that Luke says in verse 17 that they were sitting. To sit is the posture of a teacher. It's also the posture of unmoved hearts. There was no way that these boys, these religious leaders, were going to stand for any of Jesus' teaching. But no doubt as well, these Jesus have positioned, these, te- these pieces of the law have positioned themselves around Jesus. They have come and, and they have taken up the best vantage points and space are in this house, which means that those who genuinely need to get to Jesus are actually out on the margins. They have made it difficult for others to see, hear, and get to Jesus. They're They're kind of protecting people. They think they are. Luke lets us know that at the same time that this was happening, a group of men were seeking to get their friend to Jesus. Sitting between these men and Jesus were the Pharisees and the scribes. A picture, if you like, of what work-based religion does. It keeps you at a distance. But for these lads, uh, four of them, Mark tells us that there were four of them that were bringing this paralytic, um, their hearts have a posture, if you like, a stance, an approach to Jesus that is one of, of, of trusting and persistent faith. That this, that this cripple's deepest needs could be met by this Jesus if they could just get him to Jesus. They had seen Jesus heal the leper uh, the day before or, or earlier on, and so they're thinking, man, a couple of jacked up legs should be like no dramas at all for this dude. Most of the houses in that period... Uh, in that time had an external ladder or some inbuilt steps that gave you access up onto the roof of the house to utilize that space for, for, um, for worship, for relaxing, for, for hanging out, your washing, whatever, uh, utilizing that space up on top of the roof. These friends were not deterred by the physical or the institutional barriers that were between them and Jesus. They sat about uh, maneuvering uh, their friend up the stairs. And once they got up onto the roof, they began to renovate their way through the roof and construct a harness and lower their friend down through the roof. Not the most you know, inconspicuous of, of operations going on. It kind of made me think of an episode of The Block. You know, They're doing some renovations. There's a bit of a challenge, build a harness, this kind of thing. Um, so added to their persistence, and their trust added to the approach of faith that they have, of trust, of persistence in Jesus, is now a public dimension. It's on display for everybody. And there's a, there's a costly dimension to what they're doing. Who's going to pay for the renovations that they're doing to this house? Some commentators have suggested that this house actually belongs to Jesus, or at least to his family. And in that case, the cost of getting to Jesus is actually going to fall on Jesus. I like this image. 
I think it fits with the picture of what's happening. Normally in, in, the, in the Gospels there, when Jesus is in someone's home, they actually get identified uh, through their name or through their profession, but that, not here. So it's not someone else's home. And surely, if the someone else's home was there, surely if the owner of the house was here, he would be losing his mind by now as bits of debris uh, began to fill the lounge room and then four sweaty, beaming faces just kind of poked or emerged through a large hole in the roof. And then they just kind of dismantled the clothesline, if you like, and turned it into a tripod and a rescue harness to lower their friend down into the room. But I picture Jesus stopping his teaching, just calming everybody down and says, all right, I know a chippy who can kind of fix this stuff. Standing, if you like, to receive this man as he's lowered down before him. Big smile on his face as the man comes to rest at his feet. What, what a picture of how Jesus receives us when we come to him in faith. Waiting, greeting, grabbing, resting. Big smile on Jesus' face, knowing that he is about to deliver another object lesson in the kind of salvation that is found in him, knowing that he's about to answer the question of who can forgive sins and how that forgiveness is achieved. And maybe a bit of a sneaky smile because he knows that that what he's about to say and then what he's about to go and do is going to really press some buttons in those whose posture towards him is just seated opposition. The room is full of Israel's professional theologians and protectors of their performance-based way of securing God's approval. And that is about to have a grenade thrown into it and blow their minds up. And Jesus is looking at the hole in the roof. And he's looking at the the sweaty, kind of scratched-up friends, their, their hands and arms maybe dripping with blood as they've had to work their way through this ceiling. He's looking at the crippled man on the floor, fastened, affixed, immobilized to his stretcher. And as he looks at all of this kind of chaos, he sees a beautiful picture of faith in him, a picture of trusting faith, of persistent faith, of public faith, of costly faith in him. This is how sins are forgiven. This is how we get to Jesus to have our sins forgiven. Faith. And he stoops down beside the paralyzed man and in a voice that just rolls across the audience like an earthquake. Uh, the ESV says, he says, man, which, is, which unfortunately loses uh, the warmth of Jesus here. The word, the address that he says to this man is actually better rendered friend. Friend, your sins are forgiven. This is, this is personal address to the paralytic. But what did he do to have his sins forgiven? Did he dig through that roof? Did he climb up those stairs? He did nothing to contribute to this great moment. No, he just, he just came actually carried by others. He couldn't even get himself there. Such was his desperate need. He came trusting uh, in faith that Jesus could help him, that Jesus could restore him. And what a picture we have here. This is what challenged me here. Who, who are we carrying in their desperate need to Jesus? For all kinds of reasons and all kinds of barriers, all kinds of things in the way, they don't or can't approach Jesus in their own 
steam in their own strength unless somebody else gets them there, unless somebody else has a conversation, explains things, talks to them, lowers them down at the feet of Jesus that they might look up and see. It's costly sometimes. It's public. Who are we bringing to Jesus that they might hear, friend, friend, your sins are forgiven. Or are we sitting in some unmoved posture? Well, right now in this moment, man at Jesus' feet, Jesus makes plain uh, what the healing of the leper pointed to. In Jesus, there is authority and power of God to forgive sins. Jesus just states straight up what the healing of the leper signified. In him is found the cure for the virus of sin that disfigures uh, and, and deforms the human heart. In him is, is, is where the gap between sinful people and a holy God is removed. The dutiful maze of, of, of regulations, the universal idea that you must earn forgiveness is dissolved at the feet of Jesus. The idea that faith is measured by performance is flipped on its head when Jesus says it's not, it's not about your works, your effort. It's about the object. It's about the strength and the power of the one you approach. Not your performance or your perfection. That's important. In response to this kind of faith, Faith in another, faith in the object, Jesus. Jesus gives this man the greatest gift at his disposal. He forgives his sins. It seems as Jesus has overlooked the obvious need to walk and gone straight to something that is not as apparent to the eye, the fundamental problem that keeps all people paralyzed. Paralyzed in fear, wondering if they can ever live with confidence that their lives are actually going to stack up and, and, and be approved by God. Uh, enslaved to the idea that they need to demonstrate that they are working on it, or, or whether either that's done through piety or, or whether they're, they're working on it, saying, Well, I'm my own savior through self indulgence. Sin paralyzes our posture toward God. And there is a desperation that can only be met by Jesus in this. And what these four friends didn't, didn't realize at first was just how deep that desperation was, that it went beyond the obvious, the surface. And Jesus graciously makes them aware of it. Jesus meets our de- deepest and most desperate needs even when we don't see them, even when we don't perceive them at first. And this is the promise of Luke 1, 77 to 79, beginning to become realized. Jesus is demonstrating uh, where the knowledge of salvation for forgiveness of sins is found. He's guiding those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, uh, to the way of peace because of the tender mercy of God. And this is also where the air in the room thickens up with more than roof dust as these great... um, paralyzed minds begin to think did did he just claim that if the object of our faith is him that then that he has the authority and the power to forgive sins based in that only god has that kind of prerogative only god should be the object of any faith is he saying that people are made right with god based on how they approach him this this is blasphemy 
This is a dangerous idea that must be stopped. We must protect the people from this kind of an idea. On what basis does Jesus say these outrageous things? And sadly, as they are thinking these things, Jesus' attention is turned from enjoying the moment with his friend to addressing the unspoken tension in the room, the spinning gears of religious minds. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. The Pharisees are right in their silent thinking. Forgiveness is something that comes from the throne of God alone. So who kind of knows if what Jesus has claimed is true or not? The claim cannot be falsified. It can't be proven wrong. And that's the great danger they think to themselves. Jesus has got to be stopped. Right thinking, wrong conclusion. The danger lies in not perceiving that the Son of Man is who God has sent into the world with his authority to forgive sin. So very lovingly, Jesus goes after these paralyzed hearts again. Yes, it's easy to simply say your, your sins are forgiven. It's an invisible claim. Hard to kind of nail me on. Hard to kind of prove me right or wrong. It would be a lot easier to prove me blasphemous, a blasphemous liar with some hard evidence, right? Like that would be a lot easier. Evidence that, that kind of connects one claim to another or disproves one claim from another. If I were to simply speak and, and, and say, you know, make this man walk, would that be enough for you to connect one claim to another? Would that be enough for you to join the dots? If I make a claim like this, and can't back it up, then I probably can't forgive sins either, can I? There's a bit to think about in this. Jesus always wants people thinking. He wants people thinking to perceive around, the, around what it is to have faith in him, trust in him that leads to a life free from the fear of who forgives sins. So Jesus essentially says, so you can have an unshakable confidence in your heart that I can forgive sins, Rise, walk, pick up your mat and go home. And our good Dr. Luke tells us that the healing was immediate. The healing was complete and the healing was permanent. This isn't some Benny Hinn kind of sideshow trick that kind of fades or wasn't real in the first place. This is irrefutable. This paralytic man gets up, carries the mat that he was carried in on and doesn't just take a few wobbly steps off stage, walks all the way home. All the way home restored back to community, all the way home, restored back to family, back to life, back to being able to, to do things for himself. It's a picture of salvation. Here is the hard evidence for skeptical hearts. Jesus is showing that his miraculous works carry uh, evidence, carry confirmation of the spiritual realities that he's also claiming. This is where the validation lies to his claims. Use your own logic is what he's essentially pushing across the table. Lower yourself to a place of faith. Let the amazing grace of Jesus grip your heart in such a way that it moves you from sitting in opposition and skepticism to God to a place of glorifying, of just amazement and movement. 
Come to a place where you see your greatest need in Jesus and begin the journey back home. A journey that begins with trusting and persistent faith in Jesus, who comes close to us, who stoops down to us and speaks forgiveness to our souls. And Jesus would bear more than just the cost of a hole in his roof of his house. He would steep even lower than a dusty floor in his home to bring forgiveness to our hearts. Ultimately, Jesus would become immobilized because of sin, fastened not to a mat, but to a cross where his sweat and blood would drip down on people below. Jesus didn't merely sweep sin under the carpet like God is no longer bothered by its offense. Oh, I I just forgive sins. They don't matter. No, Jesus knows that he is the one as he forgives our sins who will ultimately pay the renovation bill to have our hearts restored. The cross is where the work of removing the barrier and the distance that sin has caused and done. Jesus can say to the leper, be clean, because he becomes cursed. Jesus can say to the paralytic, walk, because he becomes crippled. Jesus takes the affliction of sin that is is pictured both physically and spiritually in, in these moments and exchanges his perfect life for ours so that the cost of sin falls on him, so that he's torn apart, that we might get to him, get to God, and the grace of God would fall on us. It is faith in seeing and perceiving this extraordinary thing that has been done for you, that Luke is telling us about in his gospel, that will answer that question. You know, who forgives sins and how does he do it? Jesus does. And he does it by becoming sin for us. And have you encountered that? Have you been brought to the feet of Jesus? A place of need, a place of vulnerability, but a place where you encounter deep peace and forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again as this gospel just rolls on. We keep marveling at the picture of, of you that we are gaining through Jesus. That you're a God who is not repulsed by our sin, but moves toward it to calm and to heal and to bring us back uh, into life with you. Again and again, we see Jesus doing this, modeling this idea of what salvation is, modeling for us uh, in various different ways what it is to have our sin exposed in front of a room full of people and then have it restored. Uh, We keep saying that the gospel can be said, you know, when you realize that you are far more uh, sinful, far more wicked than you would ever dare admit or make known. And at the same time, you are far more loved than you would ever dare dream or imagine. We pray that our hearts would perceive that. We pray that our hearts would not be seated in opposition uh, to this message of grace, but that that we would get up and move Move home with this message in our heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.